you can't app store enterprise software. You just can't. That's how we're starting it. So you like that one, huh? <laughs> I do. <laughs> yeah, I think it's true. I'm sure I've played that one before. It's true. What do you, you can't app store? Yeah, you can't. I mean, there's so much configuration and stuff involved that either either have a really uh, elegant tooling system that can automate the configuration and setup of everything, given all the different variables that you can have on on a client system, um, or you have a professional service arm that comes along with installing that app that does the config for you. Yeah. It's, it's just one of those things where it's just not, it's not isolated. It's just, it's not like an app on your phone where that install is isolated from everything else. Yep. It's not sandboxed. Yeah. I mean, <clears throat> enterprise software is just messy. It's, it's inevitably messy. I mean, I would say that, well, I mean, because uh, what, what some, some companies do have this problem of, well, they think they're just so special and everything must be just customized to the T for them because they're special mm -hmm. and they have a lot of money. Yeah. And so th there is some of that, but there's also just truly like, you know, these bigger organizations, I mean, they just, it, they do have complex processes and they're in depth and I don't know. That's, that's why you can't, you can't use package, you can't use off the shelf software for these, for these organizations. It's just, it's, in, it's inevitable. Yeah. Which is why enterprise software is always messy, and it's why it's almost always ugly, and doesn't have a great experience. But it, it, it was built to fit that you know unique snowflake process, so you can check that box. Yeah, those are kind of painful to to watch happen when you know it's kind of not the right thing to do, but this is they're adamant that that's what they want. Um, yeah, and even I mean, look at Salesforce and like, with Lightning experience. I mean. You know, Lightning Experiences, it, it's won, like, awards, and, like, they, they brought in, like, these, um, you know, people who are, like, CSS and design system experts from, a, from some of the best in the community. And some of them have gone on to do other stuff. You know, they don't stick around for companies forever. Mm -hmm. But, um, and even, even with having some of the best of the best, like, when you apply this stuff to, a, to something as big as Salesforce, like an enterprise software, I mean, it, it even, it's hard to keep it together. Then you can see all over Salesforce the UI where it's just not hanging together very well. <laughs> yeah, you know, you can tell where they've deviated from the design yes. system, or just never. Well, even even they, the spec on the design system it tells you exactly what events your component's supposed to handle if you're using the blueprints. So, like, take a drop down. Like, you're supposed to build a like enter. You're not supposed. It's not supposed to open the drop down on enter. But if you go into Salesforce's native you components that does the combo box, it does. Mm. And a lot of that is because I think Aria. Um, changed the spec for combo boxes to be either an input or a button. And so it inherits the enter on that, the event on that. So you can't really turn that off. But it, it just, there's like little, all these little things in the spec that you're supposed to do yeah. to, to match that spec and for accessibility and all that kind of stuff that just kind of gets thrown out. And then you've got the inconsistency of internal Salesforce, non-GA design system stuff going on. And then even differences when they change it internally just almost seems randomly. Yeah, and again, and that's not even counting the classic versus lightning. Yeah, and you have you know all these different clouds, you know, which are products basically, and then you know all the different modules with them, and they're all they're all run by different teams and everything, and just keeping keeping that many people on the same page is very very difficult. I mean, you name the companies that have done it on on a scale, uh, on that kind of scale. I mean, it, and it's a different business; it's not enterprise, I guess, so much. But I mean, the only one I can think that that you have to give a lot of credit to is Apple. 
You mean in terms of their design system? Yeah, just I mean across as big as as big as they are, as big of a company oh, as they the are, as, as many, as many yeah. product lines, as many different people work on them. Um, it's fairly consistent. Thing they you know, you you, you don't often go into a even into settings because I think Apple has always kind of prided themselves on their settings interfaces. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you go into some random product settings and it's it's just pretty darn consistent with everything. It's not, and it's they don't get short shrift. Whereas, you know, go into a typical Windows program or a heck, even even a Windows itself. I mean, there's you go digging in the control panel long enough, you start finding, you know, these interfaces that haven't been updated in 20 years. Right. <laughs> it's just like, uh, it's hard though. But I mean, I think that's, I think Apple does a good job for their scale. It's that's hard, an though. interesting thing because of the way you get that kind of inherited advanced UI or the inherited look and feel of the UI is by using their libraries. You know, I want to I want to create this property window. I want to create this property pane. I want to create this property input, and thus, as they change that, it changes with it. And we kind of have that same problem with Salesforce. We can use the the native components, the Lightning input components, and things like that. But if you go and start using the design system, start you know building new components based on the blueprints because you need something highly custom. As that, if you're not keeping that up to date, you'll end up looking pretty old and eventually broken. Mm, yeah. Uh, you know, yeah, stuff so requires maintenance. Takes maintenance. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, it takes it's, maintenance. It's great. It's tailor-made, and it looks great at the time it was built, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> but then you have to maintain that, because otherwise it'll get quickly left behind. Well, John, this makes two weeks in a row. We haven't done that in forever. And I didn't realize until after we finished recording last week, but it had been six weeks, I think, is what we figured since we recorded before then. And I, It didn't seem like anybody missed us, though. I know. No, I, that's, <laughs> you know, how sad is it that no one really said anything yeah. to us? <laughs> <laughs> just out here in the uh, ether you know neither one of our two listeners said anything to us and i'm just i'm disappointed about that <laughs> you know sometimes you need to know that people are uh you know looking out for you keeping an eye on you checking in on you no you know no one no one did a well check on us john <laughs> no. <laughs> no the dog ate us yeah <laughs> i mean oh man anyway well let's see what were we talking about earlier? I know we have the selector pattern thing, which I really didn't get a chance to look much into, so hopefully you will uh, spray, I, spray honestly, some of I'm your not, wisdom on us. I don't have much wisdom to speak, and after last week putting my foot in my mouth, which I do want to do an update on, um, I don't what know you, that I want to... What did you put your foot in your mouth I on? I wax eloquently on something I don't have 100% confidence in. Well, that was like... That was kind of like <laughs> one of our main topics or reasons to record. Today. I know, we'll talk about it, but I, I do want to do this update. So last week we were talking about... Uh, Is this follow-up? Yeah. No. Yeah, we have follow up. Oh, nice. When you record a show, you know, there's follow up. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. Especially when you're like me and you're saying you don't need something and someone comes, oh, yeah, you do. Um, so, oh, is this, the, we're talking uh, about the, this is the DX project thing, right? Yeah, we're talking about the DX project and the, the different kind of project templates you can create. And there is an empty project template you can create and it doesn't include all the NPM stuff. And that's fine. It does not include the NPM stuff? No. Uh, the empty? Okay. Yeah, it's empty. Completely empty? Uh, not completely. I mean, you get the folder structure and everything. It doesn't include okay. all the NPM stuff and all that. Okay. Um, and you can develop off that, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. Um, what the NPM package has, and I really don't pay attention to this because I don't use the, the Salesforce linters anymore. Um, that has the linters for that. And it probably would help me on things like the, and I'm assuming this because, again, I don't use them. But I'll read, I'll read Scott's note here, and he'll, he'll explain it a okay. little bit more. But to me... Because I'm using IntelliJ, the Ultimate Edition, it has all of the HTML and JavaScript tooling built into it. So I kind of rely on that for a lot of my stuff. So it'll tell me when I've got 
variable conflicts. I use constant lengths and stuff, and it'll tell me when I've got, I'm assigning some variable that doesn't match or, or anything like that. So it helps me a lot. Uh, I, I, would, I would assume if you're using like text editors or something like that, that you'd want these linters to run so that it can help catch a lot of that stuff. Um, it won't catch locker service stuff, but even that's about to change with the next, is it going to change this next release? Anyways, security model, locker service should be going away in the next release, or at least locker service advanced. is going away? Uh, it's being replaced with a native web component security model. I think that's part of the standard now. Okay. So I think locker service originally mm -hmm. was implemented to kind of help sandbox and prevent you from gaining access, direct access to the would you, window and document objects. So would you consider it. Would you consider locker service to be a shiv until the until yes. the real security caught yes, up? It was, it? A, it was a shiv. Okay. <laughs> and now that the standard caught up to to what everyone's needs are for sandbox components and things like that, I, I think that's what they're moving on to. But I haven't fully read that spec and everything, so just beware. Go to the go to the release notes and you'll see it. It's in there. Okay. Um, so this is what Scott said about my comment saying you didn't need those to run npm install. Uh, he says, listening to the show, note that npm dependencies in Paxos.json are not just for VS Code extensions. And that was one of my arguments was I was saying it was just needed for that. Uh, IC2, IC2, Illuminate Cloud, uses them as well, at least in commercial JetBrains IDE. Wouldn't surprise me if other tooling does as well. Uh, those files declare the library dependencies required to develop LWC JavaScript and for some TypeScript code in the project. Without those, code completion, reference solutions aren't going to work very well. And things like interactive Jest executor debugger probably won't work at all. And that's another point. I'm not using Jest. I don't unit test my components right now. Yeah, um, by the way, reference resolution. I think you said, I don't know, I heard something different. Oh, reference resolution, yeah. et cetera. Uh, so now, do you get all this? Do you, are you getting like reference resolution and code completion and everything on your JavaScript and in the LWC stuff? For, stu for stuff that it can infer within the file itself, it mm -hmm. does. But anything outside of it, like imported libraries yeah. and things like that, it doesn't. It doesn't. Okay. Yeah. And you're okay with that? Uh, I've kind of managed it mm -hmm. and kind of created my own little patterns for how I deal with it. Okay. Um, a lot of times it involves me remapping a lot of the variables to something local so that it knows about it and knows how to treat it. Okay. Um, so I don't do a lot of direct access of stuff that I'm passed from an Apex controller, although I probably should. I've learned that it's kind of, I have abstraction upon abstraction upon abstraction, and it's getting a little bit muddy doing that. So I might have to change the way I do things a little bit more, and maybe that's when I'll start using this. Um, he continues, this becomes perhaps even more important with Salesforce functions where JS, TS, uh, JavaScript, uh, TypeScript-based functions are generated with a package.json that should be processed. And Java-based functions are generated with a, a pom.xml uh, file, Maven, that mm -hmm. should similarly be processed in either case to have a properly configured project. Uh, all of that should be independent of the pre-commit hooks that were frustrating Jeremy with Prettier, uh, was uh, where Prettier was automatically reforming code on commit. Uh, just making sure that folks don't start to omit these critical files as they as things definitely won't work at least not as well as they should during dev test cycle. So that's, I, I, okay, minor, my, what I'm hearing here is that you've got an opportunity to improve how you're using this tooling. Yes. Yeah. No, that's good. Good to know. The thing is, the documentation in Salesforce doesn't sell you this. <laughs> Probably the, 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 the npm the running the npm package is like buried in in some LWC section of the documentation. But if you go to DX and all that yeah. kind of stuff, it never told me that I had to run these. And I never, I mean, aside from having to deal with my you know lack of typing in JavaScript for certain libraries, yeah, 
I never, no yeah, one ever told me that, hey, do this. It makes your life easier. Yeah. You could, so I to mean, me, I'm like, I can do this. I've been developing like this for uh, years. Right. I'm you, fine. You can, you can build software without it, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's not like a, it's not like it's a required compile step or anything. So I did yeah. comb the documentation looking for where it says run these NPM packages. And it was buried in, in one of the LWC nodes of the documentation. Um, but it was like one page and one tiny little thing that says run this. Hmm. And I'm just like, oh, okay. Yeah. I would have thought that would have been more <clears throat> prominent in other places. Yeah. Interesting. I wonder if the, do you know if the, like the lightning web component development trailheads they cover might. this? They okay. might. I don't know. Yeah. I've never I I taken watched them. No. Okay. I mean, I've taken some of them, but I haven't like just gone through every single one of them. Yeah. I just, I'm a busy guy. I'm yeah. focused on trying to build stuff and I learn things as I go. So now I just noticed whatever, which project was that? That was this advancement thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. I checked it out and there's a package.json. So again, like I'm just in the, habit of <clears throat> you know if i clone some project and it's got a package.json and i mean usually the first thing you have to do is npm install so i, I did that which is why i got those annoying uh pre-commit hooks right <laughs> <clears throat> anyway okay but i, I am going to start at least installing them on some of my lab pro what i call lab projects which is kind of my throwaways of testing and playing around with stuff to see what difference and it, I, and in some ways i kind of feel like it's a good thing that i haven't been using them because i can i have a contrast now yeah i can see what it's doing for me and what it's not mm-hmm. that it didn't that uh, basically that it's adding to my productivity yep or just quality of life in terms of developing a job yeah and it's one of those things i mean probably the bigger the project is the more that tooling helps you yeah um, I just, I don't like putting a lot of code in JavaScript. I really don't. So a lot of my JavaScript is, is basically just getters to help kind of take a value and format it for the UI, or there might be some interaction code in there that, mm-hmm. you know, when you click a button, check these things and then go send it off to Apex. That's my pattern because I just don't like having, I don't like having a heavy front end. Like having a heavy back end? I like having a heavy back end. Yeah. Yeah. I like big back ends. <laughs> you cannot I lie. Cannot lie. <laughs> so are you saying you can do substantial lightning web component development without doing much JavaScript? <clears throat> I mean, if you're, if you're just taking data and displaying it and read only or mm-hmm. and handling just certain interactions, hmm. I mean, it, yeah. That's interesting. But you could go full force LWC and use the, the data source or oh, I forgot what they're called. Um, the all the data libraries and the metadata libraries and everything that you have access to, and you can do all of that within Lightning Script and never go back to Apex. Oh, there's oh, so I much see. you okay. can do. So you're with, seeing a... with just LWC and all those libraries. Okay, so you're saying there's there's some discretion on where you draw that line between what gets done in Apex and what gets done in right. on the on the client yeah. In yeah. JavaScript. Yeah, no, the capability is there to go full LWC and never touch Apex. Well, barely touch Apex for for certain things. Yeah. Um, but I still like the pattern of having my backend API and having that there because that to me, and that's why I don't use a lot of testing and or don't use any testing in the front end because I mean it's there's not much there. Mm. It's you know at best I'd be testing that I got the data correctly or that I turned this value into this value for display correctly, which is all good stuff to do. But given my time and budget and things like that, I just prioritize uh, testing the logic, yeah. the business logic. Yeah. And then I just functionally test the UI. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I don't on all this UI stuff. I mean, th- the manual testing is still the most important part, sadly, <laughs> you know, just is. Yeah. Um, okay. Cool. Well, that's a good follow up. So anyways, this selector pattern <laughs> pop in the stack. Okay. Um, I, I tried looking for what this pattern was because I, 
I'd seen selectors being used in other code bases. That's kind of how I was introduced to it. And I think it was React that introduced me to it when I was playing around with it. And, and um, I mean, it's just a way of, it's just an abstraction to the data layer. It's a way to kind of say, get me this data, and it knows how to handle going to the data source, retrieving that data, and presenting it back to you. Um, so I kind of started doing that to access uh, Salesforce data. So if I needed to query something, I don't put the query in line with my function or in line in my class. I've moved it to the selector. Um, to me, that's, that's kind of a good thing because then I can isolate that query logic and I can reuse that query logic. Um, I can also make sure that security is handled correctly in that one spot rather than having to go to every fucking freaking <laughs> every cloud. I don't, know why, I don't know why that slipped out, uh, Marker. Um, going to every class and trying to make sure my security is all correct when it comes to data access. I can just rely on those selectors, know that they're handled correctly, and just retrieve the data that I need. Um, so that's kind of how I've been using them. Well, I'm on this, I've been on this project or two projects that are very similar in terms of what they need to produce and the data model they're interacting with because it's all EDA. Um, so I'm working with um, courses. So EDA is the education data, what is it? Uh, architecture. Data architecture, yeah. <clears throat> um, so they have built-in objects for courses, for course offerings, for programs, for enrollments, and all that kind of stuff. And so I have to deal with this graph of data. And in, in a lot of cases, because I'm building a course registration screen, which is a course where students can self-service, look for courses to register for, for a particular term and register. Mm -hmm. um, but I have all these things I have to check for. I have to check for prerequisite requirements. I have to check for um, schedule conflicts. I have to, all this stuff that I have to check for, which means I have to basically load all that data up. Well, that meant that I have had a huge method because I had to cache all this data so that I could efficiently organize it and then loop through all the records that they have access to and start matching up things, match yeah. up the schedule, match up the prerequisites, match up, match up courses they've already taken, match up course equivalencies, match up testing. I mean, it was a lot. Yep. And my method was just huge and I had a very hard time maintaining it. So I switched to selectors to select the data. And then I layered on another selector on top of those selectors. And here's where I think you said I'm using the wrong pattern. Oh, not necessarily. I just, I, it's something I wanted to explore. Like I, I could be wrong, right? I don't know. Yeah. But. So essentially all that stuff that I'm indexing so that I can loop through and start matching things up, I moved to another class that I also called a selector. And I kind of use it the same way. I, I tell it, just go get me this data. And it has internal helper methods that first goes and caches all the data that it needs up front. And then I can say, it might cache, you know, a list of records by course ID. And then there's a helper method that says, just get me the courses or the enrollments for this course. And so it'll come back and return a list. So it does all this stuff to help me kind of organize things and make it very clean. <clears throat> when you're reading the, the method that builds the course catalog, mm -hmm. when you're reading that, it's very easy to read because it's just like, oh, go get courses and do this or go get this and match it up. So it's not, you don't have this huge graph of nested lists of ifs and fours and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, um, I was I just was searching now on selector pattern. It, it looks like it might have come out of the kind of the JavaScript. I don't know. There's someone saying that it came came out of the MVC world, whatever whatever that means. Um, but it says, and it's this is not this is not a pattern that I've seen like in um, any of the like the normal or traditional pattern catalogs, I guess. But, yeah, I haven't. I mean, I think the closest that it tries to replicate or at least solve the same problem is data access. Yeah, I mean, I think that's what I said. This says that the the pattern's responsibility is simply to select from a list of objects. Um, which, okay, makes sense. Um, 
it's similar. To, when I see this, I always thought, well, how is this different than the, re the repository pattern? Because that's what I've, you know, in, in my enterprise development, you know, forever. I mean, repository patterns kind of been um, a pattern that I've used when like building data access layers mm -hmm. for things. And the repository pattern is, um, it's just to abstract you from what the specific um, underlying data access technology is. So like in the common case of like, you know, you've got a SQL database, right? Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and so you might not find an interface called account repository and it's got methods on it that your, you know, kind of business layer can use to, to go get data. Right. So the account repository would might have like a find by name, mm -hmm. find by ID, but it'll also have um, methods that write back. So save account. Right. You know, so, and that is where I think I just, this dawned on me just the other day. That's where the main divergence, I think, between selector and repository pattern. Selector, to my knowledge, doesn't have any notion of writing. Yeah. It's like a read only type of thing. Which is why I chose it. I mean, I was aware of the repository pattern and kind of the whole data access. What 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 is that? That whole data DAO model. Yeah, D data access object. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, but I didn't want some. I just wanted something that was strictly read, something that was efficient at reading and cataloging this information. Because yeah. one thing I wanted to do with that big monolithic method that I had was to break it up into smaller methods. Sure. Well, I couldn't do that because I had all this cache data. Well, plus, I mean, you don't want to see. You really don't want to see like big SQL queries in your business logic. Yeah, I mean, you don't want to see any, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, well, I've, I've long since done done away with that. I used to have, and I still do to a certain extent on smaller classes, is I'll move, I'll have a specific query function at the bottom. Of my, and you know how I do my code. I organize things in a certain order. So I have no, that's good. public, you know, or properties, yeah. constructors. We, we agree on that Public, part. private, yeah. <laughs> queries, all that stuff. So they're in their own regions and they're in a very, very specific spot. So yeah. I would move my query logic to the bottom because my, my intent was, and I said this last time, I like writing code like I would write an essay. And there are parts that you say in an essay or things that you don't always describe. Um, if someone wants to know more about it, they'll usually take that sentence or that word and go and research it. And that's kind of the way I treat code is you don't if you don't care how I got that data, you just know that I got some data and I'm looping through it. That's the way you should read it. Yeah. And if you do care, then you'll go into my query method to figure out what I'm querying. Yep. And that's, that's the way I write the code. Mm -hmm. um, so... So moving into the selector pattern was easy for me because I already structure my code in a way that I'm just calling a method anyways. It's just now I call get this instance of the selector and now I can pass that selector around. So that means I can have very small methods even within a loop that say, okay, get or do something and here's, here's the selector that you can use to get the data that you need to do your thing. Yeah. And <clears throat> so I, what the, the topic you just hit on a second ago was was interesting to me, which is, so you've got your, you know, selector implementations for, for really going out and just getting mm -hmm. data via SQL, right? Well, two layers. That's the original layer. Yeah. That was, that was my original intent of using it. Right. But then. So you're composing, this is, this is composing, so you're, you're yeah. composing selector patterns. So you've got selector patterns that are um, composed of other a a selectors, selectors, right? Yeah, and that's very the part. granular selectors that say, "I know how to go and grab data from this one object." Yeah, then I have other selectors that say, "I know how to grab data from this object and this object and this object." Yeah, and so that's the question: is like, you know, do you keep the selector pure? And it's just like a repository would be like a repository, like you know, an account repository has one job and one job only, which is to abstract you from how 
you read and write accounts from some source, from some data store, right? Um, and if you're doing more with it, then when the job becomes more than that, again, single responsibility, right? Mm-hmm. Then you really should have, it should be a different pattern. So maybe well, the way I would look at it is I would keep my, all my selectors pure. Like they are just abstracting me from basically writing, in this case, writing SQL queries or mm-hmm. even having to care, right, that it's SQL queries. Right. And then if I needed to compose those to put together graphs of data and stuff, I probably would have some like kind of thin layer that sits right above that still in what I would consider like the data access layer, but I wouldn't call them. So sele- maybe they are selectors. Maybe this is, I could talk myself in either direction really, but it's almost like you have a, like a data layer, like a data service layer mm-hmm. that it consumes it, um, your selectors and then put stuff together. Cause it's at that point it's doing more than abstracting you from your data source. It's doing like value added composition of data. Yeah, data service sounds like it might be a good name for it. I think at the time, I, naming things is hard. And at the time, I was like, I'm just going to call this a selector. Oh. It's, it's it's a purpose-built selector for this one function. So, and, and that did make naming things hard because I had, let's say, prerequisites. So I have a prerequisite selector that knows how to grab um, data from the prerequisite object. But I also wanted a prerequisite selector that knew how to read the the prerequisite and all the courses and all the requirements and all that kind of stuff. So it had to build a larger graph of data. So I think I ended up calling it like catalog prerequisite selector. So I kind of added to that name to make it more specific to that purpose. Yeah. But maybe, maybe I should have called it prerequisite data service. This just in, it turns out naming things is hard. (laughs) (laughs) I've got information, man. New shit has come to light. Yeah. I mean, I wanted to be something that I could at least, understand when i was reading it and it would make sense when i was reading it of what i how i was using it um i wasn't worried too much about other people reading it um i was to a small extent but only in the sense that i wanted to make reading the code easier to know that that i'm passing this selector around which basically has access to all the data that this uh routine or module needs and that's how it's going and grabbing stuff yeah now when you need to start drilling down into the data it gets a bit complicated because that class is kind of ugly. It's got maps and lists and sets and all this stuff that it needs to kind of organize the data so that it's easy for the method, the module, to consume that data. Yep. Yeah, and, and I might be getting a little too pedantic. I mean, I, w- I would say, though, like, if you are going to have selectors that to consume other selectors, that... I should call it you, something else. No, no, that's just that you make sure that... because, Well, because if you think about it, I mean, the idea of a selector is to select things from some some notion of a list, right? And in this case, I mean, a list is all the accounts in your org. That's a list, mm-hmm. right? And so your account selector is just is providing some, you know, convenience methods, number one, but number two, also just an abstraction from that so that basically so it can be stubbed out or replaced at test time or whatever. Yeah, the only value add, it's doing that, but mm-hmm. what I'm adding to it is organization. So optimizations, I guess. So I'll take a list that I know I'm going to need to grab by a certain ID and it's going to return another list. So I'll pre-cache that as a map instead of just list and, oh, okay. and looping through it every time. Yeah. It, boy, then it really gets into like, okay, if you have a, if you've got like a <laughs> selector repository, it's like caching things and does all this stuff, then that's, that is probably not, that well, probably not, does not belong in your selector. It's at that not point. technically caching, although I do have one that is caching. Yeah. Um, again, again, uh, you but know. it's it's an instance. 
So that so it's not a it's not a static instance. It's an instance, and so all that data is on the heap. And this goes back to there are no solutions. There are there are only trade offs, right? It's, these are things all trade offs. I mean, you know, if you really want to keep all these classes truly pure in terms of single responsibility, that, that's fine. You can do totally can do that. You know, you're gonna have a lot more classes, and in, of course, in the, we know in the Apex slash Salesforce world that creates all kinds of problems. You're you're really encouraged to have few numbers of classes that do lots of different things, right? Um, but if you think about a selector as, hey, this is just letting me, you know, select from a list of things. There's really nothing to the, the whole idea of it's abstracting you from where that data is coming from. Mm-hmm. So why? So what's wrong with it abstracting you from the fact that oh, this one just this selector happens to be getting us data from three other selectors? So you can make that argument that. No, it's still fulfilling its its goal, which is providing me convenience methods to access data and abstracting me from where that data is coming from. Right. You can make that argument, I think. I think I will, because <laughs> I've already implemented it. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, it seems to have worked well. I mean, it seems to have um, improved the readability of the parts that I need to be maintainable and readable. Yeah. Um, especially when I'm in a constant state of refactoring because there's all these different rules and everything that have to get accounted for. Yeah. And I, and I get <clears throat> random things like, Oh, it needs this field or we created this new field. It needs to do this and this and this. Like, yeah. Oh, crap. I got to load that in. I even started for, cause I'm, I've been doing some apex. Um, even things that I normally would have kind of kept in line in a method. Let's say, let's say you, um, you know, you got a list of, uh, oh, I don't know, some, like you need to, you need to look through a list and, in and within, with like one line in the body of the loop, like to do something to build up like a, a map or another list or something like that. I even like the, I even like code better when all that stuff is abstracted out into just small private methods. I try to do that. That, that are named well. I right? do that. And even the selectors have some helper methods like that, but I feel bad about it because I feel like I'm, I'm crossing that boundary of single purpose. I'm crossing that boundary of it's meant to select because now I have it doing things like I'll pass it a list that I got from you selector. And now I'm going to ask you to do something with that list mm. to further refine it for me. Mm. See, that's not a selector, right? It, it isn't, yeah. is it? But no, I but, have, I have that, that stuff but in that, there. That makes sense to go as just like a small private method in like in your kind of business logic class. That's, that's what I'm saying. So yeah. like my classes where I'm just implementing business logic, I really... I'm liking, I'm liking abstracting all that stuff. And, and normally, like in the Java world, I mean, that would be, it'd be a one-liner because Java has um, like these functional streams. So you can just, you can say like some list of something dot filter and then pass in a lambda that's like, you know, city yeah. equals Dallas or whatever. And then you get, but, but in Apex, you know, you've got, yeah, you got to loop, so you got to, you got to build up, but you got to create, you got to define a new list variable. You got to create a loop and loop three and add mm-hmm. things to it. And so since I've got to do that, I, I want it to look more like modern code. So I just, you know, I create, I, I'm creating just, just small private methods for all those things. And what that means is the code that's left behind in kind of your main business logic, it really does just read like, it, it just reads like English, basically. There's not a bunch of curly brackets. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, I do wish we had features like that in, in Apex because that is what I'm missing and why I do a lot of the, a lot of the types of methods that I do. Um, I also came to a realization after our last conversation when I was talking about premature op- optimization, um, where I was basically creating maps of everything instead when I didn't 
need to because the data set was always going to be really small and it's just i should just oh, look through it yeah I know. I know another reason why i did that and that was because apex at the time um limited you on the number of statements you could call mm. and so that was another reason that i focused on creating maps all the time instead of looping through um data sets and now that that's not a thing i have i in in certain instances i never broke the habit of just being okay with looping through a yeah. list if if yeah if, if i <clears throat> if i know it's always going to be small i i'll look through it. it it does feel it makes you feel a little dirty but it's like it didn't used to like in you know my sql and visual studio days I, <clears throat> looping through a data set was not an issue to me well that's because you weren't being in fact that was the pattern you had to do that it's because you weren't just being so limited so yeah so hard <laughs> so you know but yeah it, it, i i just i realized that yeah that was a behavior instilled in me by my early apex yeah. development days. Yeah. And we have to reevaluate our patterns all the time because as Salesforce relaxes certain limits, we have to look back and go, why was I doing that again? Do I not have to do that anymore? Should I not have to do that anymore? It's, it's good to think about those kind of things. Like what, okay, what's the impact of me looping through this? How, how big will this list be in production when I'm looping through it? Th think, you know, thinking yeah. like that. Um, of course the downside is, is, you know, I think apex has created a bunch of premature optimizers out there. Yeah. <laughs> so, Anyway, um, you know, I think I first saw the selector pattern in the, um, what was Financial Forces library that they had, that had all these, a lot of these patterns in it? Uh, I thought it was just Enterprise, Apex Enterprise. Maybe that's what it was. Or or was it, like that. What, is that Apex Lib, Apex Lib, or whatever yeah. it is, or is that something else? I think that's it, yeah. yeah. I wonder if that's still maintained. I imagine so. I mean, it was maintained by them for their products, so I, I don't. I don't think they've pulled that out of it. No, I Google Apex Lib, and the first thing that comes up is the Oracle Apex framework. <laughs> Maybe it's something else. Um, now I saw the other day there was some session. I, I assume Salesforce was putting this on. It's FF Lib, I think. FF Lib, that's right. Um, some, some. Uh, it was. I don't know if it was one of these. Like, what do they have these? What are these things they're having like every week or every month now? As an event or what? Yeah, no, they just, they'll do, like, um, a little Zoom with, like, I think, like, Stefan does these sometimes or whatever. I'm not, but you know, it's like Salesforce guys, and they'll just, like, uh, you know, talk about some new thing they're doing or whatever. But anyway, I saw one the other day, and it was, like, um, it was, like, oh, advanced, you know, advanced usage of collections in, in Apex. Okay, and I'm just thinking, well, I, I thought, I was thinking, okay, oh, that's kind of interesting, but I was like, well, wait a minute, I mean, it's so limited. Um, there's no generics, really. Um, yeah. And the and the the um, the classes that are available in the Apex Collection library are they're they're actually just it's just what is it? It's like a few interfaces. There's not even there's not even alternative like implementations of these things and whatever. It's like how advanced. What what is maybe there's something I don't know like what is how well, can how can you even list I know how can you can't extend them I know how can you have an hour discussion about the advanced advanced ac as aspects of the Apex collection framework? Well, you can do stuff with iterables. Yeah, you can extend. I mean, I've done a few of those. Yeah, for, for mm -hmm. some fast reads, but or what I think is going to be fast reads. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, you have to. You have to. I've. In situations where I had to use and uh, implement, luckily they let you implement iterable um, for batch. Uh, was the batch jobs? Yeah, you can. Um, you can. That has yeah. its own limitation that I read about that prevented me from using them. Mm. Um, I could be wrong. Yeah, it's like one of those methods. It's weird. 
it's almost like you, it, it returns a union type. You can either return an iterable, or you can return a... That's um, because they have generics on what, what does Salesforce call the cursor that you... Query locator. Query locator, yeah. 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 And I always use query locator for batch for large batch jobs. Yeah. I, I think for cubables, I might use iterables, but um, for batch jobs, because I'm worried about scaling, and I think the issue with iterables is I think you still have a limit. Well, it depends on what the iterable does. I don't think there's a limit because iterable doesn't necessarily have to return even a size. It's just, you know, the, if you look at the interface of iterable, it's, um, yeah, well, uh, iterable just returns an iterator, but an iterator has basically like has next um, yeah. and, and get next <laughs> or next, whatever. It's really simple. Um, I forget why I used iterable. This is for, this is so many years ago, but yeah. But I, okay, I remember, so I remember no having to use limit iterable. For the iterable return type. So, yeah. Okay. We're good. We're good. I mean, you could have an iterable that just actually returned the same thing over and over and over. It, it never stops. Yeah. <laughs> and really, I, I mean, unless they're doing some kind of crazy code analysis, like Apex really has no way to know that, that it's never going to be done. You know? So it's, right. <laughs> you can just keep going. <laughs> I'm sure that Salesforce operations people wouldn't appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they've done, they've done a lot to to protect the platform. Oh yeah, we've we've gotten pretty creative over the years with multi threads and just slamming the API and um kind of wait posting type stuff in the UI. Yeah. Um, and every once in a while, like it's usually when I'm working on integrations, like because I, I I use a lot of I mean all the almost all the integrations I build are multi threaded in various ways. Um, and you know anytime like. <laughs> Anytime, like you've got multi-threading and you're working with like asynchronous libraries, like you know, like when you make HTTP calls. I mean, um, at least in most of the most of the work I do, I'm using I'm using asynchronous HTTP clients, mm -hmm. and so there's no um, what's the word? Um, not pushback. What's it called when a um, a stream signals that it's full? Um, God, what's the word? Pressure. There's no back pressure. <laughs> And so I've I've actually done things where I think it I mean it's just it'll just it'll literally hit Salesforce with hundreds of threads, but it's usually like when I'm testing something I'm like oops stop <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Do they still kill those threads, those yeah. sessions on those threads? I because th that was my problem when I when I, I first started so. multi-threading. I think I got up to like four. I think on the fifth one it started killing them. Something oh really? Like that. Yeah. I don't know. I mean I yeah I'm, I'm sure they have. I know they have some kind of you know, some kind of rate limiting. It's, I will say it's pretty generous though. I think, days. I think what you have to do is you have to split it across multiple sessions. I think I was trying to do f multiple threads on a single session and that's when it started dropping the sessions. And I don't know if it looks by, if it looks at my session or if it looks by, um, like user, like you can, yeah. you know, I don't know. I don't know what their internal kind of rate limiting algorithm is. If it's like, okay, a user can have, because the thing is, think about a user. I mean, they're, they could be logged into Salesforce. They could be on on their mobile phone. They could have integrations that are using, you know, like their Outlook connector and all this, just all this other crap that that can legitimately be these things all hitting Salesforce you yeah. know, simultaneously. Especially now, since they're spread so thin on different product lines now. Yeah, that so external to the platform. So they definitely have to allow multiple threads per user. Now, per session is a interesting thing. They could they could probably. Um, they could probably say, "Hey, you know, it's it's one thread per per session, because you know your your browser session is going to be different than your mobile session. It's going to be different than your Outlook Connect. These are all going to have different 
they're gonna have all logged in separately and have different you know tokens or whatever mm -hmm. and so but so each of those gets one the rules you you can have one thread but they don't like i said they're, they're really generous i mean i I, I can easily do, you know, 10, 10 threads on the same, on the same session. I'll lose some data. Yeah. I mean, I, um, I, I don't, I don't do that many, like not in production or anything, but I've yeah. like when I've, um, I've, I've done that when I'm trying, I'm trying to get some data in. And for some reason it's like low data into an org with HEDA or financial force. And you'll see how slow it is. I just saw the automation is yeah. terrible. Um, and, and yeah, I mean, really the only, I mean, the, sometimes the, just the best thing to do is just turn on some more threads. Cause if not, you're, you're going to get 5,000 records an hour, 10,000 records an hour, something like that. Yeah. Whereas I think on a well-performing org on most objects, you know, you can easily get a couple hundred with one thread, a couple hundred thousand records an hour. It's, it's a tough balance when you're trying to automate things and, whether or not to make it asynchronous or not. Because one thing you lose with asynchronous is that immediate feedback that something went wrong. Well, a lot of times you, you, have, a, you have downstream processes that need to know what the result of that yeah. call was. So, I mean, it, it can still be asynchronous and non-blocking. And, and then, you know, whenever, this, whenever the asynchronous process is done and a callback happens, that, you know, that callback then invokes whatever the next downstream thing is. But From the integration perspective, yeah. yeah but yeah. from the internal Salesforce perspective, it gets really tough. And that's why these things, that's why the performance ends up lagging so much. because you have so many things that are dependent. You're chaining all these automations, mm -hmm. and they're not work. They're not designed to work well together and, or co cooperatively together. Yeah, they're isolated little bits of automation that are running. They're, they're, they don't take context from the previous. So you you pretty much load all the data for this one, and then load all the data for this next one. Load all the data for this next one, and run all this logic and loop through it. And before long, you've you've gotten pretty close to CPU limits. Yeah. Uh, okay. What else do we have, John? You have a bunch of things here. Um, a, we didn't talk about. I know you mentioned Apple. We don't ever talk about Apple. That's probably fine. But I did. Um, I did just buy two phones this morning. Oh, did you? Yeah, we were. Two. They went on sale today, right? Or pre-order today, mm -hmm. and you can get them what end of month. So Sarah's will come in a week from today, and mine just because she. I think she got silver, and I got the dark color one, charcoal. I forget what they call it. It's, I don't know. There's some fancy. Was there a particular it. reason that made you want to get this version, or just you just wanted to upgrade? I'm just my phone's two years old now, and I I, usually, I don't go longer than two years. I'm on the 10 still, so I'm, what, three, four years? Um, at least three years, right? At least. Because mine's an 11. So if you have a 10, and it's two years, this is two years. Well, the years 10 old. came out the same as same year as the 8. Like, they skipped 9, I think. Oh, yeah, that's right. So it was the 8 so and that's the 10 three. that came out. So that'd be three. That's three years old. Yeah. Your three years old. Yeah. <clears throat> I, don't, I mean, I don't have to. I'm, I'm, on, I'm also on Apple's program. I, mean, I, can just trade it, I can just trade this in every year and get a new mm -hmm. phone. But this, like, for the, what are they, what's the one now, before this, 12, right? Mm -hmm. So the 12 came out, and I was just like, I know, I, I mean, I can just get Apple to send me the, the 12. I have to send them, I'd have to send them this one back, though. Right. Um, but that's where Apple benefits, actually. Because I, and I decided, I'm like, well, there's nothing in the 12 that I'm going to notice, really, I don't think. Mm -hmm. And I don't have to go through the pain of switching phones. So I'll just keep this 11 for another year. Well, now, I guess if I turn it in at the one-year mark, then Apple just gets it back. And I don't really get any credit for that. But I do get the new phone. Oh, you get a new phone. And I'm kind, mm -hmm. kind of on this. They got me right where they want me on this right. uh, hamster wheel here. Where I, just, I don't ever stop paying them money. Yes. But if I just keep it for one more year, which is what I did, I, it's like paid off now. So now I 100% I own it. So I went from like, I 0% owned it. I would have 0% owned it at the one year mark. Mm. But I just kept it one more year. And now I 100% own it. 
So now I'm actually getting, I'm, I think it's about a $500 credit for trading this in. I'm just going to trade it in. I, don't, I used to keep them. I'm, I was I was like, oh, what if, you know, if someone needs a backup phone or it breaks or whatever. I'm tired of keeping $500 phones around as potential backups. And then yeah. by the time I get rid of them, they're not worth anything. I'm just going to turn it in and get my credit. Yeah, turn it in and get it recycled by some third world country that doesn't have environmental oh, no, they'll, protection. They'll, they'll sell this. This this phone is it's in perfect condition. Yeah. And they will sell this for... I mean, these phones in good condition like this, I mean, they're not, they really hold their value. They should. I mean, there's nothing wrong with it. I mean, mine, I still go strong with it. I still have the original iPad Pro. What do you think of the, do you do iPad minis? Uh, we have one. It's my wife's and she barely uses it. That new iPad mini looks kind of sweet. It does look good. Yeah. yeah. Even she was like, hmm. But, she, but she had to admit that she doesn't really use it. So that's our problem. Like, I mean, I, you think she would? I mean, she sits in bed and reads on her phone. Like you have the mini, read yeah, on the mini, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah, I don't know. I always, I mean, I, I iPads always look great to me, but I just I don't ever end up using them. And I want to have a reason to buy one, but I'm I'm glad I really don't. <laughs> well, I use mine a lot. I mainly for almost like a mini Apple TV because I end up just watching streaming stuff, or sometimes I'll put something on in the background and. I'll get tired of listening to music or something and I'll just grab the iPad and I'll put something on, not something I'm watching, like some documentary or something. And I'm just listening to yeah. it. I mean, I lay in bed at night and watch and I'll watch a TV show before I go to bed on my phone. That would be, that would be a good use case for an iPad, right? Yeah. yeah. I, I do read on it, but the problem is, and I'm hoping that the newer ones, not that I'm getting one, but if I do, I'm hoping they're much lighter because the problem with my iPad pro now is it's still pretty heavy. So when you're sitting reading and holding it, it gets pretty heavy. In fact, yeah. I have what, what I call the old man stand. That's what everyone calls it in the house. But yeah. it's basically a stand with an arm mm. that I attach it to so that I can <laughs> read. Because if I'm reading in bed, I drop it on my face. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> or if I'm sitting down reading, it's um, it gets heavy or my hands get sweaty and it starts slipping out. And it's just, then I don't like fingerprints and stuff. Yeah. So, Yeah, no, the mini would be a good size for just laying in bed watching a show. I mean, certainly a lot bigger than the phone. Which is sad that I do that because I have a big screen. I, in fact, the TV in our bedroom, I think, is like two inches bigger than the one in the living room. We don't have a TV in our bedroom. Mm. And I think I want to change that. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah. Uh, Especially uh, when you're sick and you have those sick days and you're in bed and you just want to put something on. I don't get sick days. Because I don't get sick. I was talking about that the other day. Like, you know, since COVID and everything, I mean, I haven't had as much as a cold at all. Nothing. I've had nothing. Just your insomnia. In years, just insomnia. That's my yeah. that's my affliction. Um, but no, as far as Apple, like, I'm, I'm I've, I was worried actually that they were going to announce new phones, new AirPods, new MacBooks because I'm like go that's broke. just yeah, just I mean I'm just going to write like a eight thousand dollar check to Apple this All go around things, yeah. <laughs> yes because I I'm getting a new phone, I need new AirPods bad, and I'm ready I'm ready for a I want to go ahead and try the next Apple Silicon. I'm, I'm ready for that too. Yeah. And I think, and, and, and unless I chicken out, if they do announce a new MacBook, I'll, I'll pro or MacBook pro. I will, I'll, I'll pony up for it. Yeah. You're, that could, that's still a good computer, but I'm still, cause saving, I'm, I'm still saving my, my company stipend for it. Yeah. Mine's only a year old. Um, Oh yeah. Mine's older. Yeah. Cause you replaced yours after yep. mine. Yeah. But my but mine is a higher spec than yours. We meant to get the same thing, but I think I, yeah, I think so. I got the 
confused or something, and we ended up getting one spec higher yeah. on the CPU, I think. Mm. I think it was like a 2.4 minus like 2.6 or something. I usually don't buy up the CPU because it's it's so expensive to do that. And I just feel like I'd never, I'm never going to notice an additional like 10% in CPU. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it was a graphics card or something that I opted for. That's the reason it bumped it up or something. But anyways, yeah, we talked about the Apple event. And I was I was saying how overly produced it is. How I missed the, the mm-hmm. live events yeah. where you had live demos. They were sitting there with the PCs and sure they practiced these these things to be able to put on a good show but it felt natural it felt um uh what's the word I mean it was live it was live you know I mean they sincere it felt sincere yeah, yeah a little bit more sincere yeah <laughs> I mean it is Apple so <laughs> well I mean you have you're up there you're you're talking about this you're you're live you're a live person these are so overly produced there it's just where where you can say okay that conference where that they did in the past. Yes, it's a commercial, but it felt more like a conference where they're talking about these new features. Now it feels exactly like a commercial. Well, there was one of these so overly produced. They have so many graphics. They have so many things yeah. drawing your attention. It's too much. It's 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 not. I can't watch it. And that's Apple saying like, "Hey, we can afford Hollywood producers. Yeah. Watch this." It's like, okay, yeah, yeah. Well, to they, the point where I'm like, "Why is that dude putting a phone on his bike and now flying? Does that mean my phone will let me fly?" Yeah. They had. I, I don't know if it was like it's kind of like a transition or bumper music, but. It was, was it like a band? It was a band playing, but each, each member of the band, so it was like drums and bass. And there was a, um, what do you call the string, some kind of stringed instrument, a uh, violin or something. Okay. <laughs> but they were also, they were all in different places of the world or whatever, mm-hmm. which is fine. I mean, it, it's, it was just an effect. It's like a, it's a video package thing. But what, what made it really bad is I noticed this because I tend to, I tend to focus in on drums a little bit. but. Like the drums did like this right in the middle of this fill or something, and so you could it was it made it so obvious that the whatever the person was playing on the drums was not that they weren't oh. even playing that. So talk about insincere. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Maybe I'm probably being overly picky, but no. I mean that's it just bothers. It just added to that lack of sincerity. Yeah. It's like this whole thing is so fake. Yeah. I mean, I, I I liked the events before because it felt live and sincere. You you could they were telling you about these products and they were showing you these products. Well, and also. It, and it gets to the point that, like, you know, there's some lady that's talking about one of the new products, and she's standing behind this giant screen, and then you're like, is that screen even there, actually? I, I can't tell if Thank anything I'm looking at is real or not. I know. <laughs> I know. And even the pans, like, like they pan over to someone that should be there, but, like, you know they weren't there before, so yeah. how, did, they, did they just yeah. kind of affect pan that, yeah. and it's not real or what? But I remember the first time they did this kind of virtual thing, I was like, oh, that was actually pretty, they did a really good job, that was cool. They did. But it's just, it's getting... Um, but it didn't have all this overproduced quality yeah, to it. Yeah. I mean, it was it was almost like them just on camera doing the same thing. I mean, yeah, they were going to different locations, but it still felt somewhat sincere. Now it's just like they got all these graphics. They got all these, you know, people are warping in and out yeah. with their watches. And I'm like, okay, this is, this is too much. It's gotten gaudy. Yeah. So that led me to trying to contrast that with what we might experience with Salesforce Plus. So then maybe this first one, because it's the first one that we'll be doing Dreamforce, it'll be somewhat sincere because mm. it's the first one but See, you I, know salesforce and their marketing team it's going to get just as bad as apple because they love being they love like apple. apple they love them. yes <laughs> uh, <laughs> in fact they're giving away disney plus subscriptions for yeah. for this which is don't do it because what's going to happen because this happened to me I was actually you thinking, buy their package <laughs> deal 
and you get in the free Disney Plus, and you realize that free Disney Plus comes with commercials, and you're like, crap, I don't want all these commercials. So you end up spending the the $10 extra a month to get it without commercials. Oh, is that the case? Is there a, is there a Disney Plus that comes with commercials? I don't know. Okay. All I know is that I bought this like Hulu, ESPN, Disney Plus package thinking, that's awesome, that'll save me money. 10 bucks, I get all three. Nope, all three of them had, maybe, at least I know ESPN and Hulu had all the commercials. And I couldn't opt out of the commercials. I had to kill that subscription and then create a new subscription on each individual platform to get out of the commercials. Wow. Oh, as a, um, as a part of getting my new phone, one thing that I get more money for, I because, mean, you know, the carriers all have these deals with Apple now, but we're on T-Mobile. And it's, I'm actually getting $740 credit per phone. Like 450 of that is, is, or 500 or so, something like that is for the phone itself. But the other remainder of it, T-Mobile's kicking in if I upgrade to their Magenta Max service. Mm-hmm. And kind of it's actually the same, well, it's the same price as what I'm paying right now. Except it's, you get a little bit more. Like, supposedly the, the tethering you do, you get, it's going to be on their fastest tier now. Or at least the first 40 gig. And then after 40 gig, it goes back to their normal fast tier, which is plenty, plenty fast already, actually. I've never noticed it being capped anyway in any way um but it also comes with netflix hd netflix so i can get i can stop still for, watching netflix i still watch netflix you saw i'll be able to get my what netflix for free netflix i can't find anything Dude, to watch you say that about everything netflix has a huge catalog there is so much on my netflix. favorite right now is, is uh, discovery plus because i can watch all the documentaries i don't know i'm okay. so old yeah. now i love watching documentaries but okay, so free netflix with the hd streams and um unlimited free Go go in flight Wi Fi. Like, that'll, that'll you're come in such handy. Such a globe trotter. Yeah, I'm not. But my wife is. <clears throat> so there you go. That'll be useful. Yeah, that will be. But anyway, so for signing up for that, T-Mobile kicks in like another two hundred fifty dollars credit per phone. Mm. I know. You know, getting deals. It's just like finding all these credit cards deals. It's all about finding all these weird. Things if you're really you into it, your toes. You kind of so kind of opt in. Kind of reminds packages. me of couponing. You have to like, yeah, you have to be diligent. Yes, yeah. Define like because if you know, you don't have to pay less price for anything really. If you can figure out all the little deals and whatever to get rebates and bonuses and credits yeah. and all this stuff. Although all those people that were getting their groceries <laughs> for free or getting even getting paid for their groceries is uh, they were buying a lot of junk food. That was a lot of processed stuff. They were shopping a lot in the middle of the store. Well, did you see that? Was it was it a real show or movie about these two women that that were doing some kind of couponing thing? They were in one of these little clubs or whatever, and they figured out a way to massively scam companies, and they became like billionaires off of their couponing scam. <laughs> no, I yeah, there's some that. there's a, like a show or movie or something. I saw the, a trailer for it the other day. Huh. That'd be interesting to watch. <laughs> yeah. I'd see that. I mean, it's kind of, it's, it's a little kitschy. It's kind of, you know, silly comedy type of thing, mm-hmm. I think. Unless, I'm assuming it wasn't a, if it was a um, parody or a hoax or whatever, it was, it was very, very well done. But I think, I thought it was a real, a real show. Well, John, what else do we have in our docket today? Did I you see, Sel- did you look into this Salesforce's code generating system thing? No. I code, didn't. code T5. No. It sounds like a Terminator movie or something. Yeah, I didn't really look into it either. <clears throat> I'm, trying to hide, I'm trying to hide from the idea that Salesforce is going to replace me with the with a bot. <laughs> oh, they're trying hard. Um, I, 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 I kind of read through this, and I was like, well, what does everyone else say? So I looked at um, 
the Hacker News entries for this article, like, I mean, it got zero interest from anyone anywhere, as far as I can tell. That's interesting. But hey, it's de-biased, John. De-biased. Yeah. I didn't know that was a word. I was like, what is this de- debious? What does it mean to, <laughs> what does it mean to prune and debious something? Oh, oh, de-bias. That's what it is. <laughs> well, that means a lot of human intervention, doesn't it? I guess. Isn't that, isn't that by, isn't that by its nature biased? I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Microsoft and Twitter and Facebook have all tried algorithms that would de-bias things. And well, and I don't, things more biased. I have no idea what, what kind of bias. I mean, there's, you know, statistical bias and all kinds of stuff that has nothing to do with like, you know, social, oh, social constructs. Stuff, yeah. yeah. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, it'd be, it'd be interesting to see what it came up with and what it could do, but I just, I don't know if the, I don't know that we're at a point where they can effectively solve problems that way. Uh, I could be wrong. Um, I have a few things on here that are about programming and development. Um, How about, what is this five tips to prevent stress in your... It was a lame article, actually. <laughs> so we're not going to do that one. Um, oh, why is it not coming up? Did it, did it get killed? Did I have the wrong link? No, works for me. Oh, it worked for me. Uh, it actually came up in my in my uh, Reddit feed, and there was comments on the Reddit feed, which I don't know why I don't have the Reddit link, that were better than this. Um, but some of the headlines were, don't, don't try to write perfect code. That one did kind of resonate with me a bit, because I do tend to focus too much on writing what I think is perfect code, future-proofed code, code that'll scale really well. Um, and I end up too much in the weeds on it, or I end up overcomplicating something that could be simple because I'm trying to account for all the different variables. And that's kind of one of the things that frustrates me with the people that provide me requirements to stay really generic is I feel like they're not thinking about all the different scenarios that could happen. It's like, okay, when this happens, create this, 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 this record. I'm like, okay, well, what if that field is null? Is it required in the data model? Do I need to make it required? Do I need to skip over this automation if it's not there? Um, what, what do I do if there's an error? This is an async process. So do I send an email to someone? Mm-hmm. Do I just let it error? And whatever happens, happens. Yep. I mean, there's all these little things that aren't accounted for in our requirements. And so when I'm trying to write perfect code, I'm trying to think through all those holes and trying to plug all those holes. I mean, I've been dealing with the same exact thing, like on this advancement thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, that's a big example. Yeah. The problem with the advancement thing is we're trying to replace something that exists. And the mentality is... We want that over I here. I don't reject. I reject that. And I'm that, like, but no, the notion of just make it like this other thing, or we're gonna re- we're gonna replace this old system with a new system. You know, it's written in a new language, and you know, it's what and is modern, all that stuff. So just make it like the old one, but better. It's like no, that that, that is not a requirement. Yeah, that doesn't that doesn't suffice for requirements. Well, I, I need you to to collaborate with me so I have a, a front line because we are gonna. I, I felt very overwhelmed by three people just saying, yeah. Uh, we just need it to look like this. Yeah, yeah. Quickly. Yeah. That's definitely a discussion point that we'll, we'll do internally. <laughs> uh, so anyways, that I do tend to do that. I shoot myself in the foot by trying to over-optimize prematurely or think about all these scenarios that I probably don't need to think about. I mean, they probably should be thought about, but it's not in my budget. I, I, I don't know how to say that. I wish I could do the best work all the time, but it scales yeah. based on time and money. I, I, I can't change that. Yeah. That's why also, and I, I try to, this is, this is an interesting concept that, you know, like, let, let's say I need to get something done and I need to know, like, is my budget, 
I'm just throwing out random. Let's just talk in hours, for example. Like, do I have 50 hours to do this? Do I have 500 hours to do this? Because I can probably technically get it done in 50 hours, if that's really what you need. But but let me know if we've got a bigger budget than that, because if I've got, you know, 200 hours, I can make this so much better in so many ways. Right. In terms of configurability or scalability or... Yes. I mean, just all the things. Error handling. Yep. 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 I mean, edge cases. Mm -hmm. I mean, just all kinds of things that if you just have more time, you can just do a much better time. I mean, again, you you know, you can can build a house for $100,000. You can build a house for a million dollars. Right. And if your budget is a million dollars, but you don't tell your person building your house that your budget's a million dollars, they might just think, well, they're probably on a small budget. We better do... We better, you know, keep this efficient. And then, you know, build you a $100,000 house and you're like, oh, that's not near good enough. Yeah. I have had a million dollars to spend. Well, why didn't you tell me? Yeah. <laughs> but it's weird because a lot of people, because I think the, you know, the most common scenario is because you never have enough, no one ever has enough budget, right? It seems like, right. you know, never have enough time, never have enough money. And so we get in, we get kind of beat down into this mode of just, no, just, just get it done and you get it done as efficiently as possible. And, you know, you, I don't know. Like that's just where that's kind of the mode that we tend to get in. Yeah. And really, what I try now, I'm not perfect at this, but I always try to like keep an eye on um, what what is my budget, and then like you know halfway into it, like oh, okay, what kind of budget's remaining here? Because I want to make sure that if I've you know if I've been allocated you know the 200 hours <clears throat> that I build something that's worth that. That and I'm using that effectively, and I don't leave a bunch of. I mean, someone who wanted a, you know, a something of kind of X quality is not going to get that. They they don't want their money back. They they wanted us to build a thing good, right? <laughs> and I need to know what that is. And so, yeah, yeah. And sometimes when you're getting that third party, it's it's hard to get that context. Yeah. yeah. Or also, you know, people feel guilty like, well, I can do this in 50 hours. Well, okay. Let's let's talk about what what you can do in fifty hours, and then let's talk about what what would it look like if you had more time. And sometimes, if like, hey, there's no, we can just totally do this really great. It's just a small task in fifty hours. We don't need the two hundred. Okay, well, if that's the case, then that's that's totally fine too. What we'll do is we'll just figure out does it can that budget be redeployed or does do we just refund it? You know, there's like there's things we can. And I, I can, I can but that tan- conversation has to happen. Well, see that tan that that forces me into a tangent, which is one of the other things I wanted to talk about is the role of an architect. Because when, I, when I'm in the role as an architect and I'm up front with a client and we're talking about all these different requirements and we're, kind of cons- we're talking about the entirety of the system, that's one thing that the architect can have a perspective on is these totally. are your options. Yeah. You know, yep. This is what the system can do. These are the, and, it, and it's not always one way to do something. It's like I have some automation. We can do it with flow and you, can, you get these benefits if you're doing it for flow. We can do it with code and you get these benefits with code and you can do it with, you know, this external system and you get these benefits. But I feel like without someone fulfilling that role, no one gets the option to explore. No one gets those options put in front of them to explore it. It's you need this requirement done. I know how to do this with X, Y, Z. So that's how I'm going to do it. Yeah. Yeah. And then if I can't do it with that, then I'll call this other person to do it with that. Yeah, exactly. It kind of goes back to the, like, if you're, if your only tool is a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. Yeah. Yeah, and also goes. I mean, that's the architect thing. I mean, it's 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 an architect's job, and I I, don't know, I guess kind of also it gets it gets businessy as too. So I'm not sure if like a business analyst role. I mean, it's maybe like a partnership, but 
just back to the thing of, you know, there are no solutions. There are only trade-offs. Well, right. You know, the stakeholders need to understand what these trade-offs are because they're the ones who need to make those trade-offs. Who need to, you know, for most of them, need to make the decisions on those on those big trade-offs. Right. Yeah, and that's the way it usually played out. I mean, you would present the options. You'd, you'd tell them what your preferred option is and why, and then you'd leave it to them to make the decision. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, I mean, I'm not big on, you know, you can call these, everyone has different rules for these different, or different names for these different titles and whatever, but yeah, there's basically, I mean, those, yeah, those, those conversations need to happen on, on projects. Yeah. It's just so that everyone's kind of moving in the same direction. Yeah. And I mean, like, you know, think about anytime you buy something or make a big enter into some kind of big endeavor i mean you want to know what your options are or if you're going to buy a car or build or remodel your house like you kind of want to know what's the big what's the good better and best or what are my you know if i can't get this what can i get or if i scale back on this can i do something else over here yeah and sometimes you're willing to find more money to get something that you want exactly oh i mean you might not have you might say my budget is 10 grand but then you, then they say, well, if you really want this feature, I need an extra five grand. This is what I call, um, I like, to, and I always like to make sure people get out of the way of this. Let the customer upsell themselves. They will. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, so yeah, I, I, <laughs> I feel like some of these things, like when I'm trying to perfect code are really symptoms of the fact that we didn't either detail the requirement enough or we just don't have enough input because i feel like all these things i'm trying to do to, to make this perfect is because i don't have the context of what we really what we really need to build yeah and so i'm just trying to get it to cover as many scenarios as i can think of so that it at least survives production mm -hmm. yeah and, and it, even even when um i will say this people always have to make micro decisions you can't hold meetings for Every little decision. Um, and that's why I always say, you know, and again, this comes at a little bit of a cost, but people should be like the people that are going to be building stuff. Like me is like, if I'm going to be a developer building something, like I really wanted, I want to be on as much of the conversations as possible. Like really kind of the early on conversations too, because that just is going to give me, I'm going to get into all this interstitial contextual knowledge that I just would have never gotten through a document or not near as well anyway, because probably there's not even a document, you know, everything's agile nowadays. <laughs> um, yeah, I have, I, have, I have things to say about that. Oh, I do too. <laughs> I do too. I mean, there's people use, you know, there's people find all kinds of way to drag the word agile through the mud. Um, but uh, yeah, the, I mean, the more knowledge I have, then when I'm making all my little micro decisions that I'm making while I'm coding stuff and something up or building or designing out a data model or whatever, um, I'm going to be able to make I'm going to be able to make those trade offs better. It's true, but even that has its trade offs in that you're on the phone with a client and not writing code. It, it does. That, that's what I'm saying. That's why I said there's a cost to it. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, at some point, you know, the costs just have to be borne. I mean, someone has to understand the business context what needs to be done what the goals are so that when they're building things they can, they can make the right decisions and again I, I think if you have an architect that you can trust to have those conversations and you can you can trust that the downstream from that person or that those persons um i think but, you can but it can't be someone that. that's too far from the people that are building it. this is also why i don't really i've never bought into the idea of like architects as separate from developers um 
if you have an architect that's just not that's not getting their hands dirty building things frequently, then I would not trust that architect. Yeah, their their scope of knowledge starts to what is an what is an architect in terms of software engineering? Is it someone who's not a software engineer? Uh, they used, they used to be. They used to be not. But do they need to understand software engineering? Do they need to have that skill set? Is, is it? Is it? Is a? Is an architect just like a software engineer plus plus? To me, they're like a uh, conductor. <laughs> like they understand how to write music. They understand um, choruses and lines and beats and and all those things that make a good song. Yeah, and they can orchestrate that, and they can get the people who are doing the actual playing to stay together yeah, in line. And yeah. that's their role is they're the conductor. That's to me what an architect is. Yeah. It does require that baseline knowledge, but they don't have to be the master of the trumpets. They don't need to be the master of the violin. They don't have to be the master of whatever instrument. Mm -hmm. They just need to understand the basic concepts of that and how to use them well together. Yeah. And it's through iteration and through practice that they perfect their, their uh, concert. Yeah. And so to me, that's what an architect should yeah, do. Yeah. I, 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 I appreciate that metaphor. I think it, I think, I don't think it fits super well though. <laughs> like, cause I agree with you on that's on like a, a conductor doesn't, I mean, they usually, and they, they're going to be, um, probably master level at, at, a, at one or a small number of instruments. Yeah. And all the other instruments, they understand well enough. They know what key they're pitched in. They know what their ranges are, things like that. Right. Um, but they're, not going to be any good at playing them necessarily, right? Um, whereas in software engineering, like an you know an architect, I feel like an architect does need to know a lot more about those instruments in the in the software space. I mean, does an does an architect have to have to know JavaScript and Apex to be an effective architect at defining a solution? I mean, so isn't that so isn't, I don't think they have Apex in JavaScript the hammer and the nail. So I, I'm going to say I think they do need to I think they do need to know Apex and JavaScript. They need to have had some experience working with those tools. Well, sure. Yeah, yeah. they need to know what a hammer is and what it do does. They, do they need to be like the best JavaScript nerd on the staff? No. No. But if it's you know if the last time they've done JavaScript was when it was a Netscape Navigator in 1998, then they're not going to be able to make good decisions about how to architect a system. Well, I think what saves architects is. Part of the architect process should be and usually is prototyping. So if you have a concept and a client has trouble conceptualizing something, you can prototype it and say, okay, here's what it might look like if we went down that road in a very clean or very dirty kind of non-production ready way mm -hmm. where you just kind of throw something together and show the concept. And I think that's where they can kind of maintain those skills is in that prototyping phase. Yeah. Now, the same way evangelists, I mean, the, the Salesforce evangelists, they were all hardcore, or most of them were hardcore developers and in the throes of implementation projects, and they moved on to being evangelists, but they still practice their trade through, you know, learning these new techniques so that they can be able to communicate with people. And that just means throwing together a project and seeing what it can do. So I think it's on the architect to kind of maintain that, to main, have that practice, have that time to maintain that skill. <laughs> Um, I did that whenever that we had a new Salesforce feature and I wanted to recommend it, I would spend time just building and interacting with it and trying to figure it out probably more so than I do now as a developer. Cause right now I don't have that luxury. I have to build things to the schedule and to the time. So I, I heard Martin Fowler give a, 
interesting is he has interesting views on architecture and like what an architect is, what an architect's job is. Mm-hmm. And I can't, he had these, he'd come up with like these two types of architects and they were both, they were like, they were Latin terms. It was like architect, um, whatever the Latin word for astronaut is. And there was architect aritzus, uh-huh. which is like Latin for rice because uh, it was named after they, for some guy he knew that knew it was like the best architect he'd known. And so he came up with those two, two, the two types of architect. Anyway, he's got a, I would say his, his whole, his page, he's got like on his, on his website, like this page on architecture, probably worth a read, but he says, um, when people in the software industry talk about architecture, they refer to a hazily defined notion of the most important aspects of the internal design of a software system. A good architect is important. Otherwise it becomes slower and more expensive to add new capabilities in the future. Uh, So that's kind of the intro thing. But then he says, like many in the software world, I've been long wary of the term architecture, as it often suggests a separation from programming and an unhealthy dose of pomposity. Mm. It's really the separation. I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, the ivory tower architect, the, the astro, you know, astro, or the architect astronaut, you know, that's just so separated. I've, um, I've seen people that treat yeah. that role that way, <laughs> and I, I never liked being in that environment where the architects were these kind of high-level almost manager v vc level type people that that you should look up to and you should listen to because they're your seniors you know they 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 didn't feel like they were collaborative or part of the team it felt like they were above the team yeah and i've seen that and it's not a good environment yep yeah so i don't know i mean i feel like um you know uh, uh any developer i mean part part of the career path is like you should get to the point where you you can architect solutions and again what does architect what does it mean to to architect as if that's even a verb and i, I liked what he said there what is it it's um although i'm not sure i'm not sure if he's making fun of this definition or 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 uh recommending it but endorsing it it's uh oh the most important aspects of the internal design of a software system is architecture. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, not, not a great definition. Yeah. I mean, I guess in some sense, I mean, to me, the architect's supposed to kind of think through some of these gotchas, think through some of the, the various aspects that a requirement might touch. Like, you know, this, this feature will have an impact on security. Yep. This feature will have an impact on performance and scalability. This feature will have an impact on, you know, XYZ. And it's their job to kind of think through those and decide or help decide, help with the clients decide that's something we need to focus on. Yep. I just, I still think that it, you, you really can't divorce architecture from solid engineering skills. No, yeah, sure. Yeah, I agree. But it's something that needs to be there. I mean, you think about all these major projects that exist in the world that we can draw analogies from, like you know, building a huge building or building a ship or building anything, a skyscraper. I mean, you have the concept of an architect, someone who decides what needs to be built and what tolerances are allowed within that that structure yep um just so it can survive so it can be safe (laughs) Mm -hmm. and i think those same concepts do apply to the things that we build it's just sometimes i think we're a little lax because we have these these uh guardrails in the salesforce system limitations and the stuff it does for us that we we tend to focus less on it in the interest of speed and budget I mean, how many conversations do you have about security? Not until we're ready to deploy to an environment and things aren't working. And we're going, oh, that's a permission issue. 
That's a permission issue. That's uh, a permission yeah, issue. Yeah. <clears throat> well, how much of, of architecture discussions in the cell source space all revolve around limits? Mm. I mean, like, almost like the majority of it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I mean, I've never focused so much on limitations as I do, have, as I have as an Apex developer. I mean, before it was just, I built it, I see performance issues, I'd refactor it and and keep advan- iterating over that product but here so much of my own front is well you can't do that because you'll run into limits we have to do this async because we're running to limits yeah. um can't do that in flow because the integration is going to run and that's going to slow the integration yeah right <laughs> so uh, there's a few other bullet points but we don't have to get into them one was try to automate things you do repetitively sure <sighs> but the problem is yeah. i don't always have time I do it repetitively, and I kind of got good at oh. doing it repetitively. So I'm <laughs> yes. like, I, it's going to take me longer to write the script than to just do it. You're really fast with your inefficiencies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, avoid thinking about tasks during breaks. Uh, I, that's a tough one. I can't help it. Even when I try to stop work early and me go too. to bed, it's just going on, and I can't stop. Sometimes I'll be like, I got to go to my desk and try this out. Because if it works and solves my problem, I can sleep. This is probably not healthy, but I, I do. I, I solve problems. Um, laying in bed. I do too. Yeah. I know that's not good. It's part of my sleep problems. <laughs> yeah. The other like, one is become more friendly with your client or team. I don't know if that's a good thing. <laughs> no, I see how clients respond to someone they really like on a project and how they respond to someone they don't like on oh, a project. Yeah. Yeah. And things are much smoother when yeah. the client likes you. For sure. Yeah. Um, don't panic when you break something. I don't know that I ever panic when I break something, but I do give it the highest priority because I screwed up. Yeah. And I, I screw everything else. I'm working on this right now because I screwed up. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm, I'm a bit panicked. And I do end up making mistakes because I'm trying to get it done really quickly. Yeah. Um, but those were the five bullets that, that were on that. They weren't anything groundbreaking or anything, but um, there's a few that kind of made me think, yeah, I probably should, should work on that. Yeah, you're right. It was kind of a clickbaity article with almost obvious points, but yeah. not, not the bad points. It's just nothing, nothing profound there. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, John, I say we go ahead and wrap this one up, man. It's, uh... Yeah, I gotta go get the poke. Oh, your... My allergy, allergy shots. shots. Yeah. Yep. Uh, you just poke for so many things these days, John. Every week? Once a week? Yeah. Are you back to once a week? Yeah, I'm back to once a week. Oh, wow. Yeah, every two weeks didn't work. Yeah. It was really bad. Then you're gonna be getting boosters every few months now, apparently, so... Oh, so now I get to add more pokes. Yeah, that's this, what I'm this, My allergy shots are three shots. Yeah. So I get three shots every week. Jeez. Tossing a booster and I'll be with four shots a week. I know. Jeez. Must be a walking pincushion. Just, I just need to get like point. an IV hookup and just, <laughs> just, just stick it in there. Well, what, what, I mean, how about when you're, you know, everyone has to get ports installed in their chest? A little port. A little port? And then, and then you'll be shamed for not getting a port, you know, to make it easy on the, on the healthcare workers to quickly give you your boosters all the time. <laughs> well, that's what I meant. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The little IV thing they stick in. I'm in favor of mandatory ports. <laughs> <laughs> Certain segments of society might like it, <laughs> make it easy to get certain things into the system. Yeah, that's true. You know. All right. Well, dear listener, thank you for uh, joining us for yet another uh, a bonus uh, right on the heels of the previous episode. I know. <laughs> we're probably shocking people at this point. This is episode 282. John, we're, we're, we're slowly approaching 300. That's crazy. Yeah. I can't believe I've gone through this with you 282 times now. What kind of mac- masochist does that make me? What are you trying to say? <laughs> I'm offended now. Yeah. And to that, I say no. 
Um, okay. Well, yeah, that's, let's wrap it up. Um, join our Slack. Good day, sir. Pod- no, you have to go W's. You have to do the W's. I, I didn't know this. W, I, w, I don't w. know what you, I told you to look at that because I don't know what I'm doing wrong. Okay. Apparently our ISP, it's hover. For some reason it doesn't, I configured it. It's supposed to work, but mm-hmm. it doesn't work. So yeah, so you have to go to www.gooddaysirpodcast.com and click on community. You can get into our Slack there. Uh, shoot us an email, info at gooddaysirpodcast.com with um, feedback, questions, sticker requests, complaints. Other than that, tell your friends, tell your neighbors. Don't use flow. <laughs> and to that, I say, good day, sir. You get nothing. You lose. Good day, sir.